0: This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. You are listening to Climate Now. I'm James Lawler, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Asmaret Asafal Berhe. Was Professor of Biogeochemistry and Falasco Chair in Earth Sciences and Geology at the Life and Environmental Sciences Department at the University of California, Merced. Dr. Verhe is a soil biogeochemist who studies the impact of erosion, fires, and drought on the carbon storage potential of soils. She is a globally recognized advocate for the role that soils can play in removing and storing carbon from the atmosphere. In 2021, Dr. Berhe was nominated by President Biden to direct the Office of Science in the United States Department of Energy. Let's start with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is, how did you get to where you are today in your career?
1: I grew up in East Africa in Eritrea. So in the capital city of Eritrea, in Asmara, is where I was born and raised. And when I went to college as an undergraduate... Um, in the University of Asmara in Eritrea, I heard about this department of soil science. And until then, I never knew that there was the science of soils, uh, like most people, I think, um, especially most 18, 19 year olds. Um, And once I discovered that I can study the sciences that I was fascinated with already within this new context of soils and the world that um, is within this amazing world of soils, I just never stopped. And I've been learning about soil since then.
0: And what was it that intrigued you so much as a, as a teenager in the science of soils? Like, what was it about that that really grabbed your attention, would you say?
1: I think it has to be discussions about the ecological functions of soil. See, most of us recognize that our food largely comes from soil or plants that you know, grow in soil or animals that feed in soil. But what we don't necessarily know about um, is that soil is also responsible for recycling our waste, regulating our climate provision of of water um, and clean water. um, And is also serves as a building and engineering medium for so much um, and is home to the most abundant and diverse forms of life than we know of anywhere in the earth system. And I think learning about the ecological functions of soils um, more than anything else was just eye opening.
0: Was there a connection between your interest in you know, soil erosion and the ecological function of soil and you know, the region where you grew up?
1: yeah I'm actually there is a, an important connection because East Africa happens to be one of the earlier known settlements that we know of anywhere right in the world, and so the soils in the region are amongst the longest cultivated soils they have some of the longest cultivation and human use kind of history and by virtue of that the and and some of the climate complications, those soils also happen to be among the most degraded in the world right now. And so there's a huge emphasis placed on trying to understand soil degradation and also soil and water conservation practices um, to protect the soil resource, obviously, from further degradation and rehabilitate as much of it as possible.
0: Mm -hmm. So give us a description of your research today. What do do you and your, your research group focus on?
1: Yeah, so um, my group at the University of California and Merced is a soil biogeochemistry research group, and largely our work revolves around trying to understand the role that soils play in maintenance of the Earth's climate. And to a lesser extent, we also spend a lot of time asking questions about um, human soil relationships. Um, So the political ecology context of what it means um, when humans are interacting with soils and the subsequent degradation, um, and even questions about ownership and other issues that are associated with it. But within the first major area that I mentioned um, in soil biogeochemistry, our work tries to improve our understanding of how and why organic matter that would otherwise decompose rather quickly remains in soil for long periods of time so think about the fact that the organic compounds and the carbon within that are in soil are these um you know rather fast cycling, if you will, thermodynamically unstable group of reduced organic compounds. If you left a residue to decompose on top of the soil surface under most environmental conditions, it would decompose within a year or so. But if it actually enters in soil, that carbon can be retained in the soil for thousands of years, sometimes longer. And so that's the kind of mechanisms that we're interested in studying.
0: Uh, and perhaps just define what we what we mean when we say soil. It, it, is that you know four feet under the surface, or what, what? What exactly does that mean, soil?
1: Yeah. So let's start from that point, right? Soil is. Um, that loose material, that unconsolidated loose material that's a mixture of minerals and organic matter. And technically speaking, soil is anything that is sitting on top of an unaltered rock that we refer to as parrot material. And that and that is what defines the depth of soil. And globally speaking, um, I think it's fair to say that the soil, the depth of soil can be approximated by about six foot. Um, of loose soil material, uh, but. There's a lot of variability based on a number of ecological climate kind of related variables. There's a large variability in depth of soil. Some soils are just 10 centimeter deep, maybe even shallow. Others can be tens of meters deep, 10 meters and beyond. Um, and so it's a very interesting reason why we can't approximate carbon storage very well. is because we just have a hard time estimating the distribution of soil depth. But generally speaking, a lot of the accounting that's out there in terms of soil carbon storage right now um, includes at least the top two meters of soil, if not the top three. Um, So that's kind of the level of estimate that's out there. And when you consider those depths, then um, there's roughly close to about 3000 billion metric tons of carbon, 3000 gigatons of carbon stored in soil. That's compared to about 650 gigatons that's stored in vegetation, and another close to 800 gigatons that's stored in the atmosphere. So in essence, then, I think it helps to remind folks here that that soil stores more carbon than the atmosphere and the vegetation combined, and then twice over.
0: That's incredible i 'm wondering if you could paint a picture for us of the soil carbon cycle you mentioned that you know you were you've been exploring how let's say the the black carbon affects the the, the soil carbon cycle. explain to us what that even means what what is the soil carbon cycle
1: yeah, so um the carbon cycle uh, the biogeochemical cycle of carbon um, that p- soil is an important part of basically operates. Um, in this manner. There's a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere. And when plants photosynthesize, they take out CO2 from the atmosphere and use it to build their biomass or the green matter. And when those plants die, or the animals that fed on those plants die, their remains return into the soil. Um, And that's the main entryway for carbon from soil of carbon to the soil, sorry, I should say. So once the carbon is in soil though, it doesn't just sit there. Um, In fact, there's an active community of microorganisms that decompose that residue of animals and plants um, and cause the release of greenhouse gases in the form of dominantly CO2, but also methane and nitrous oxide into the atmosphere. And I think at this point, it's important to mention that decomposition is an extremely important ecological process. It's the process by which all the nutrients that plants took up from the soil when they were growing is actually released back into the soil so that it could be used by the next generation of plants and organisms that live in the soil. But generally speaking, though, so photosynthesis is the primary pathway that carbon comes into the soil, and a large part of that carbon that comes into soil gets decomposed by activity of microbes and returned back into the atmosphere again as greenhouse gases. But in the process, some of that carbon might actually not decompose rather fast, and it could be stashed in what I like to refer as the soil carbon bank. And this is why I think it's important um, when I'm talking about this, I like to use a bank analogy to understand carbon storage in soil. It's very useful to not just rely on the rate of input of carbon or the rate of output, but rather the balance of the two, because soil carbon storage works basically like a bank account. You and I have a bank account where in the beginning of the month when we're give, you know paid our salaries there's a lot of you know kind of a lot of carbon if you will um, for photosynthesis that enters the soil but once we pay our bills there's a you know very little that's going to remain and the question is if we can maximize how much is saved at the end of the time after we pay our bills we can build a rich you know, bank account, right? And in the same manner, if we can slow down the decomposition of even a small amount of the carbon that enters the soil over time, then we're able to build a rich bank of carbon in soil. And in fact, all the carbon that's in soil right now was built like that over long periods of time, kind of based slow rates of accrual, but slow rate over long period of time um, was able to build, all of that carbon that is in soil right now.
0: Now, you mentioned one mechanism by which, you know, carbon re-enters the soil um, and then is is metabolized by um, microorganisms, you know, one byproduct being CO2, which is emitted into the atmosphere. But by what mechanisms, by what biological mechanisms does carbon become permanently, or you know, sequestered in the soil? Is it is it also through microbial decomposition, or is it through some other um, processes that that the carbon remains? And and when it remains, in what form does it remain in the soil?
1: So, um, as a soil biogeochemist, I prefer not to use the word permanent when it comes to d- discussing organic matter. Mainly because, um, again, these are, as I mentioned earlier, thermodynamically unstable organic compounds. So they don't necessarily stick around in soil forever. Rather, what we now talk about is the balance again. At what rate can the decomposition in soil be slowed slowed enough so that there is an accrual over time. So there's, you know, higher rate of input than output. That's the focus um, of what I discuss. So um, from a perspective of why carbon persists in soil for long periods of time compared to biomass, for example, uh, largely has to do with the environmental conditions where that carbon finds itself in soil. And by this, I'm referring to Um, For example, the organic carbon can be trapped inside aggregates or clods that are made by combination of minerals and organic matter. And once it's physically trapped in these aggregate spaces, then its rate of decomposition is slower because if the microbes are going to decompose it, they're going to have to break down those aggregates first. And that's energetically a very costly process. Um, and even more of the carbon that persists in soil for long periods of time is stored because it forms a chemical association with surfaces of minerals. And here it helps to remember that soil is made out of, um, you know, not just the organic matter that's cycling, but largely actually is made out of mineral bits and pieces of, you know, rocks that are weathered and altered over long periods of time. And those minerals tend to be reactive to a different degree, depending on which minerals we're talking about. But in particular, when with these organic compounds that have charged surfaces come in contact with the mineral surfaces, which are also charged, they can form chemical bonds. And those chemical bonds are actually largely the reason why most carbon persists in soil for long periods of time. Just like that physical association inside aggregates that I described, when carbon is bound to the surfaces of minerals through these chemical bonds, it's also hard for microbes to decompose. So if microbes have fresh sources of residue to decompose, then they leave that alone for way longer. And so it accumulates over time, basically speaking.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, So by what mechanisms have you or have others learned that the Um, the release of carbon from the soil can be slowed down.
1: Yeah. So um, when you think about the actual processes involved in land management that could slow down the rate of decomposition, it helps to think about what uh, conditions, environmental conditions, would create um, the environmental settings that microbes cannot operate optimally at. And by this, I'm referring to the fact that it's the decomposition that's facilitated by microbes that is responsible for r- loss of the carbon from soil or release of greenhouse gases. And so if we want to slow down the decomposition, then we have to figure out what are the conditions under which the microbes operate optimally and how can we change those. And for that, thankfully, we know a lot about this, right? Say, for example, tillage. It physically mixes soil. It breaks down aggregates and it aerates soil, i.e. it creates optimal conditions for microbes to actually efficiently break down the carbon that's in soil. So if we can slow down tillage under, if that's appropriate for the soil, you could slow down the rate of decomposition. If you could provide mechanisms for organic matter to be trapped either inside the aggregate spaces physically or bound to the surfaces of reactive minerals, that would also create, you know, kind of conditions that would slow down decomposition, right? So there's a whole host of mechanisms, including um, reducing application of excess amount of agricultural chemicals, for example, that would decrease the rate of greenhouse gas fluxes from soil.
0: Why does reduction in application of chemicals um, improve the carbon retention profile of soil?
1: So remember that the both the carbon and nitrogen cycling in soil are coupled processes. So when you have mineralization of organic matter is when both these processes that unleash eventually release of CO2 and nitrous oxide are you know activated to a large degree or their rate can be enhanced. And application of agricultural chemicals, in particular nitrogen-based fertilizers and other chemicals, um, actually creates conditions in soil um, that would cause large degree of nitrous oxide. Um, In fact, if you look at the the, where nitrous oxide is released, um, you know, globally, or even the US, you would notice that agricultural areas stand out.
0: So mineralization is not the same as the mineral association that you were speaking of earlier?
1: No. So mineralization, actually, by definition, just means conversion of organic compounds into inorganic forms. So in essence, the conversion of um, the reduced organic compounds, where you know most carbon is part of soil, to CO two that conversion is a process of mineralization. In the same manner, in the nitrogen cycle, conversion of that organic nitrogen in the residue or organic matter pool to you know nitrate and ammonium and eventually N two O that is also a process of mineralization. Um, but it's very different than the mineral association part. The process is responsible for association of the reduced compounds, so the bonding. There are more processes that we recognize as sorption or complexation, cation bridging, but they're really just binding. That's just binding, not conversion of or transformation in, in, in that composition.
0: I'd love to ask you to clarify one point because I think for some it might be a little bit confusing or perhaps counterintuitive. You mentioned that, you know, one of the the objective or sort of the if our objective is to slow the decomposition rate, you know, that that is affected by the microbial communities in the soil, then one one might ask, well, w- why not just try to kill the microbes in the soil? Then, you know, certainly the rate of decomposition would slow.
1: Yeah, so no, we don't want to do that because as I mentioned earlier, decomposition is extremely essential ecological process. Um, And even beyond decomposition, microbes have a lot of other essential roles that they play in soil. So even though we might want the rate at which they are cycling the carbon to slow down a bit, we definitely do not want to stop it it's a critical process by which the nutrients that are needed for the next generation of organisms that, that will call the soil home um, will get released um, and so yeah we we don't want to sterilize soils.
0: What is the potential for additional carbon sequestration by soils and then by what mechanisms could we achieve that?
1: yeah so there's a there's a pretty important and significant potential for carbon sequestration out there. But I think it's important to make sure uh, we're clear about the fact that the rate of sequestration depends on the what type of ecosystem we're talking about and what type of management practices um, are also implemented in soil. Uh, But a good way to start thinking about this is think about the fact that, for example, since we started agriculture, there's an estimate out there that about 120 billion metric tons of carbon that was in the top two meters of soil was released to the atmosphere with the fastest rate of release happening in the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution. So to start with, you can think about can we reverse that? Can it, Can we at least put back this amount of carbon that was released from soil into the atmosphere because of um, you know, human land use in working lands, basically speaking, um, and and that's kind of some of the one of the important guiding principles for carbon sequestration um, um, in around the world at this point. Uh, but then, to give you some numbers to constrain the rate of sequestration, for example, though. So, for example, you could sequester carbon really fast in wetland soils that we broadly classify as histosols, meaning organic matter-rich soils in wetlands. Um, and the rate of sequestration there could actually be really fast, on the order of about 50 megagram of CO2 equivalent per hectare per year. It's really fast rate of sequestration. This is, you know, as opposed to something on the order of one um megagram co2 equivalent per hectare per year that we can sequester in um, using cropland management for example or grazing land management so it's a huge potential here but it helps to remember that the climate envelope where you can find wetlands and the geomorphic constraints that are out there of where wetlands can exist makes it so that there is limited area where this practice can be adopted right but even though the rate of sequestration is low, you know, for cropland management or grazing land management that I mentioned, uh, there is vast areas around the world, two, three orders of magnitude bigger areas where we can practice grazing land or cropland management compared to restoring the hysticols, right? Even though grazing land management and cropland management have a very low rate of carbon sequestration, by the virtue of the fact that they could these practices can be adopted over large global areas, they can still achieve roughly equivalent or even slightly higher rate of global sequestration. Um, you know, so we're talking about 1.5 or 1.6 gigatons of CO two equivalent per year in grazing land management or cropland management compared to 1.3 by restoring histosols.
0: Thank you. Um, I'd love to ask you about measurement and how sort of measurement practices have evolved and what the current state of the art is when it comes to measuring the amount of carbon that is stored in soils.
1: Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, We, I mean, really for several decades now, we've been able to rather accurately measure how much carbon is stored in soil, um, you know, at the plot or sample scale right? Um, We have measurement techniques that are getting more advanced. And the more common one that we use in the lab is uh, the dry combustion technique, for example, where you just burn all the carbon that's in soil and then try to measure um, how much CO2 is released. And that's pretty precise. We can get really precise measurements. But where things get complicated is when we try to scale up those measurements to plot, and especially regional and global scales. And that's because the amount of carbon stored in soil is not just how much, you know, the concentration that you have to look at. To to be able to accurately determine how much carbon is stored in soil, you need to know how deep the soil is. You also need to know how densely packed the soil is, a term that we use in soil science is called bulk density. So basically how much soil is within a given volume. Um, and, And we also need to know how much rock is in there because technically, by definition, anything that's greater than two millimeter is not soil it's either rock or pebble or something else. So for accurate measurements, we need to know the depth of soil, we need to know the bulk density, and we need to know the rock content in addition to the concentration of carbon in soil. And as you can imagine then, trying to do that is time intensive. It's not necessarily difficult. We've done it for decades, but it's not quick and it takes time. And of of course, um, with time comes money in the consideration. And so that's really where the discussions of how hard it is to determine um, the amount of carbon stored in soil come from.
0: So I know very little about what I'm about to ask, um, but I know that, um, you know, geologists working for oil companies have various methods to kind of assess the underground conditions um, in any given location to sort of, you know, make judgments on where to where to build yeah. oil. You or mean like drill.
1: geophysical approaches, right?
0: Yes, like geophysical approaches yeah. to assess, you know, density of the subsurface levels.
1: Yeah, so in, in fact, geophysical application of geophysical techniques to learn more about the subsurface is an active area of research. There's huge potential there. It is being used, and in fact, it was used um, in a couple of projects that I've been involved in. Um, but keep in mind that the way the technology works, or at least its application to soils right now, it is also time intensive and not cheap. But but it is there. Yeah. So instead of having to dig all over the catchment, trying to figure out how deep the soil is, you can now use these really incredible geophysical approaches to tell you a lot, not just the depth, but also a lot about the subsurface. So the technology is there. Um, it's not necessarily fast and it's not automated, not yet at least. But but it's definitely an incredibly useful tool that's increasingly becoming part of how we understand the soil carbon, not just soil carbon but overall soil processes and properties.
0: Hmm. And is there any signature from outer space like that could be accessible, you know, could be sort of visible to sa- you know through satellite imagery that would tell us anything about what's underneath the surface over larger scales?
1: So that that's a little bit of tricky because most of the remote sensing approaches that are available, they could tell you a lot about the very top of the soil surface, but they can't really tell you about what's going on in deeper subsurface. Um, and if you really want to know, say for example, how much carbon is stored in soil, you can learn some some you know, things from the top soil, but you really would not gonna get accurate characterization unless you know more about the subsurface. Um, There's a lot of modeling kind of approaches, computational approaches where we are trying to use um, data from the surface to predict how much, um, you know, how much soil is in the subsurface or even how much carbon it can store. The reason why these things are tricky is because soils are very diverse. Um, the depth of soil, the type of soil, the mineralogy, i.e., its potential to stabilize carbon, um, and, uh, and hydrology and temperature dynamics that dictate how active microbes can be. All of these things vary as a function of climate, r- the, you know, parent material that the soil is formed from, the relief or geomorphology of the landscape, the kind of biota that you have in there, and how long even these soils have been weathering. These are factors that we collectively refer to as state factors of soil formation. So these five things dictate so much of the properties of the soil. And that's the reason why soils are so diverse, even within small geographic area, let alone large swaths of land.
0: Very interesting. Um, I'd love to come back to a question that you 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 posited earlier, you know, which was can we reverse the amount of of carbon released from the soil since the start of the industrial revolution. And that's sort of a motivating question for a lot of this work. What is your opinion? Can we, can we do that? And what would be the way in which we would need to, uh, and how essentially.
1: Um it's technically not impossible to reverse that, all of that carbon that we lost, but it would take a lot of time because remember, soil carbon sequestration is a rather slow process. So to be able to achieve uh, that much carbon accrual, excess carbon accumulating in soil compared to how much um, is being lost, right? We need a concerted and sustained efforts for decades, if not longer so it's not impossible, but it does re- it does require a lot of effort and patience
0: amazing thank you dr berhe that was That was really great it's very exciting to hear you talk about all of these things it's um fascinating, so I really appreciate your time. Um,
1: I know I have the tendency to get animated when talking about soils it's soils great. Just fascinating
0: After our conversation, we were curious about how much patience we would need to put back all one hundred and twenty gigatons of carbon released from soils through human activity. Using Dr. Berhe's estimate of almost three gigatons of total annual carbon storage potential across wetlands, grazelands, and croplands, it would take a little more than four decades. So those kinds of practices could really have an important role to play in this century in removing carbon from the atmosphere. That's all for this episode of the podcast. Climate Now is made possible in part by our science partners like the Livermore Lab Foundation.